0: We've been considering the applications of the divine principle of separation within the laws and rituals of the ecclesial age. The balancing issue in this divine principle is that there has to be a separation to and a separation from. As with all divine principles, with their always two categories, there is often an oversimplified focus on a single aspect of a divine principle being inappropriately promoted within the Enlightenment. The enlightened community this is also the case with the divine principle of separation as there is an imbalanced emphasis on a separation to by our community today and not a separation from we noted how both of these uh, those separation categories had to be applied in our relationships and interactions with the unenlightened community we're commanded to love our neighbors but also to be very separate from them not yoking ourselves to unbelievers, not joining them in their ungodly activities such as their religious celebrations and festivals, their political activities and their philosophies, and serpent-based presumptions, but being separate. But we also began to review the fact that there's also a separation to and from responsibility that has to be exercised in relation to the enlightened community as well we began to consider the ecclesial age law of fellowship withdrawal, what is sometimes defined as delivering to Satan, meaning consigning members of the ecclesia to an exclusive social identification with the unenlightened community. Sending a brother or sister to Satan does not simply indicate refusing the memorial service emblems. Just as a side note, Defining this fellowship withdrawal procedure as delivering to Satan is a powerful contradiction to the popular paganized Christianity understanding of a wicked immortal angel opposing God. If the term Satan actually represented the immortal enemy of God in Christ, then why would Paul repeatedly deliver erring brethren? Directly to this wicked angel so that he might correct them and they could repent and possibly be saved. (laughs) That would be very counterproductive. Paul says he delivered Hymenaeus and Alexander to Satan so that they would learn not to blaspheme. Paul advised the Corinthian Ecclesia to deliver the young man living with his father's wife to Satan so that his life might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Paul obviously did not understand the term term Satan to represent some kind of impossibly wicked immortal angel who opposed God and Christ. That would be silly. Paul is simply referring to the ecclesial age law of fellowship withdrawal, a complete social withdrawal intended to prompt an absent repentance through embarrassment and social distancing. There are many within the brotherhood who have objected to this ecclesial age responsibility of fellowship withdrawal when warranted. Primarily, this is due to the heart-generated presumption that any form of criticism is always counterproductive. This extremely ungodly philosophy surfaces in quite a number of applications, such as educating our children without criticism or discipline, the divorce platform, of simply irreconcilable differences and the overemphasis of the one-sided management tool of positive reinforcement. Yet we certainly see God and Christ criticizing and correcting the enlightened community, sometimes quite harshly. We certainly should be aware of the law of the watcher that's presented twice to the prophet Ezekiel. We read this in Ezekiel chapter 33, Speaking of verse 7, So thou, O son of man, I have set you a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore you shall hear the word at my mouth, and warn them from me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you shall surely die. If you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the wicked of his way to turn from it, and he do not turn from his way he shall die in his iniquity but you have delivered your soul your life so if we refuse to identify ungodliness whether doctrinally or behaviorally within the enlightened community we become guilty before god for the unaddressed sin of the brother or sister in the truth That divine law is the exact opposite of the presumed righteousness in our society currently that criticism is somehow morally inappropriate. Now this divinely imposed responsibility has been both divisive and personally dangerous as the enlightened community has killed the prophets, highlighting their ungodliness down through time, starting with Cain and Abel with the most prominent example being the Son of God. Fortunately, today, the enlightened community does not have the political capacity to put its members to death. But this has nothing whatsoever to do with the ecclesial age law of fellowship withdrawal. One of the illegitimate identifications with fellowship withdrawal has been the divine judgment of stoning to death. The absolutely foolish association is made with the woman discovered in the very act of adultery. She's taken to Jesus to hear his judgment of her. His silence is finally provoked into the response of inviting anyone without sin to be the first to cast a stone at the adulterer. They all walk away. And Jesus himself, the only One truly without sin will not condemn her, but commands her to sin no more. The odd suggestion is made that this indicates we should never highlight the sins of others, and that fellowship withdrawal is like an execution. The divinely appointed and perfectly appropriate judgment of execution by stoning under the laws of the first kingdom of God is absolutely nothing whatsoever like the ecclesial age law of fellowship withdrawal. First, let's address the appropriateness of the divine directive of education of execution, sorry, execution by stoning. Uh, there were many ways an offender could be executed. I mean weapons such as swords and spears and arrows could be used, as opposed to rocks. One could be thrown off a cliff, as the Nazareth synagogue members tried to do with Jesus at the beginning of his ministry due to his stinging but accurate insults. Beheading was another execution avenue, which was the preference during the French Revolution. Hanging to death was another possibility, and this avenue was divinely legitimized by the divine rule of taking the corpse down from the tree on which they were hung before nightfall. Another avenue could have been incineration, as Nebuchadnezzar tried to do with Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Another execution method could be poisoning, as has been often been ordered by the courts in the United States. But God demanded death by stoning for those who offended his righteousness in certain ways, such as blasphemy, idol worship, disrespecting the Sabbath, adultery, murder, even theft as was the case with Achan and his whole family and even his animals. So why stoning and for that matter why an execution? In our society today executing a criminal for any crime is commonly presumed to be an immoral act. Capital punishment is objected to on supposedly moral grounds however that philosophy indicts the Creator and Jesus as both being immoral. God imposed the sentence of death due to the sin of Adam and Eve. Death could never, possibly, have been part of the pre-sin creative order that God declared to be very good. The ecclesial age rituals of baptism and memorial service are physical validations that God was right to require death for sin. Jesus will judge the living and the dead, but will consign a huge percentage of those judged to die forever. So if capital punishment is supposedly immoral, that is an indictment against the Creator of the universe and our Messiah. So, a judgment of death can't possibly be inherently wrong because God is always right. So then, the question is, why stoning? And for that matter, why did God require that it was the witnesses of the offender's sin who had to be the first to throw a stone at the offender being executed? We read this in the Law of the Witnesses in Deuteronomy 17, one of the places. At the mouth of two witnesses or three witnesses shall he that is worthy of death be put to death. But at the mouth of one witness he shall not be put to death. The hands of the witnesses shall be first upon him, to put him to death, and afterwards the hands of all the people. So thou shalt put the evil away from among you. This is certainly not the case in our society, nor has it been in the societies of the sons of men, the unenlightened. The witnesses were not the executioners, but that's what God required under the laws of that first kingdom of God. The execution by stoning divine directive was due to the offender breaking the stone covenant and therefore they had to be broken by stones. The Ten Commandments inscribed in stone by the finger of God are defined throughout the writings of Moses as simply the covenant. Those four surfaces. On those two sets of two stones were the physical embodiment of the covenant of God with the enlightened, covenant-bound community. If one broke the covenant commands inscribed on those stones, then it was required that they be executed by stoning. The requirement that the hands of the witnesses be first against the condemned highlights the difference between the distinctive educational focus between a stoning execution during the first kingdom age and a fellowship withdrawal during the ecclesial age. The educational focus of a stoning was to recalibrate the spiritual understandings and resolve of those executing the offender by stoning. The person being executed, obviously, experienced no valuable learning lesson from their execution. They were offered no opportunity to repent. Just as those whose presence will be required at Christ's judgment, our rock, the stone the builders rejected, um, that stone cut out of the mountain without hands, um, uh, they, those judged will not be permitted any possibility to repent or change at that final judgment. There are only two judgments possible at that time, forever life or forever death. The primary lesson the executioners were to understand was that sins against God deserve death, validating God's righteousness in originally introducing death as the physical consequence for contradictions to His righteousness. This restored the value of a fading fear of God. This observation of death being the righteous judgment of god is the same lesson in baptism uh, where jesus declared to his hesitant cousin john he he had to demonstrate the fulfillment of all righteousness in his own baptism declaring god's righteousness in demanding death for sin by descending into the watery grave of baptism and then declaring god's righteousness in offering renewed life on the basis of grace despite being right in demanding death for sin by then rising again out of the water that water grave of baptism the stoning executions under the laws of the first kingdom of God declared God's righteousness in demanding death for sin with the witnesses of those sins being prominent in that execution However, condemnation is not the primary educational focus of the ecclesial age. The ecclesial age law of fellowship withdrawal does offer an educational recalibrating influence for the offender. Unlike the permanent application of stoning, the unrepentant brother or sister is encouraged. Through the embarrassment of disfellowship, to abandon their ungodly understandings or ungodly behavior. There is an emphasis for reclaiming the lost. That is not a component of the stoning to death judgment of the first kingdom age. The intended educational component of the fellowship withdrawal procedure for the unrepentant offender in the ecclesial age is emphasized in how Paul explains why he withdrew fellowship from hymenaeus and alexander those that those two brothers might learn not to blaspheme now blasphemy was a crime punishable by stoning to death in the previous divine dispensation paul's goal was to save those two unrepentant and divinely offending brethren in the truth this is completely different from the execution judgment of stoning where there was no educational component for the offender only for the witnesses and the rest of the enlightened community this saving procedure for the offender was also defined as the motivation in paul's advice to the corinthian ecclesia in relation to the man living with his father's wife we read in first corinthians 5 uh, where paul says in the name of our lord jesus christ when you are gathered together and my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit, the life, may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. The initial purpose for Paul's insistence for delivering this unrepentant brother to Satan, this fellowship withdrawal, is to save that brother from himself. That was not a component of the Kingdom Age judgment focus of execution of stoning, but the value for this procedure for for a separation from within the enlightened community is not limited to the unrepentant erring brother or sister. Paul's next comments explain the value to the ecclesia for this fellowship withdrawal procedure. Um, Dropping to next verse, verse 6, your glorying is not good. Know you not that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Purge out therefore the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you are unleavened. If this openly, publicly, unrepentant disrespect to God's righteousness would not be addressed, that attitude will begin to permeate the ecclesia like leaven puffs up bread dough. Just like Christ was always, and exclusively identified with leaven-free shadow symbols, that is our goal as well. We're supposed to be leaven-free. Yes, we do have access to grace and forgiveness, but the goal is supposed to be leaven-free. Fellowship withdrawal, when sadly necessary, in the context of a refusal to repent, is an act of love. It's a salvation procedure. Those who oppose fellowship withdrawal, under any circumstances, simply do not truly love. Whatever love they have, for God and Christ and their brotherhood, is shallow and weak. But Jesus warned us about this as well in the Olivet Prophecy in Matthew 24. uh, He says, And many false prophets shall arise, talking about from within the enlightened community, and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. So just as Paul and Peter and Jude Uh, Jesus warns us about false teachers operating within the enlightened community who will sadly be quite successful. And when iniquity will abound, the love of many will wax cold. Well, I, I don't think there's ever been a time in the history of this world where iniquity has abounded as much as it has in the world today. Therefore, the love of many waxes cold. According to God, this is a direct correlation between increasing iniquity and decreasing love. makes no difference whether one is in the unenlightened community or the enlightened community. True love, a love of great strength and conviction, is rare in both communities. And this is exactly the terms with which Jesus defines our exact last generation of the ecclesial age neither hot nor cold, just unpalatable to Him. As a community, our love has waxed cold. doesn't have to be the case for individuals, but understand, if we demonstrate that burning love, that greater love, that love of conviction, that makes us a target, particularly within the enlightened community. The Ecclesial Age divine law of fellowship withdrawal on the basis of unrepentant doctrinal or behavioral applications is consistently undermined, has been an evil procedure, counterproductive to the pursuit of unity, but unity is the serpent's goal, not God's goal, which is harmony. Agreement with the terms of God's righteousness is the correct goal. Not the toleration of diversity in uh, doctrinal or ungodly doctrines or ungodly behavior. And not toleration of increasing and unrepentant iniquity, particularly within the enlightened community. Therefore, identifying the fellowship withdrawal law of the ecclesial age with the execution by stoning law of the first kingdom age is completely illegitimate. The focus of the execution by stoning law was judgment for sin and exclusively the education of the witnesses and the entire community not the offending party. The focus of the fellowship withdrawal law is grace, mercy and forgiveness with or potential forgiveness with an educational value for both the entire community and the offending party. These two procedures demonstrate Two separate features of God's righteousness, both judgment and grace. The absence of a willingness to exercise the ecclesial age law of fellowship withdrawal when necessary demonstrates an absence of love. It exposes a love that has waxed cold. There is an application of the divine principle of separating from that has to be exercised within the enlightened community as well as in the context of the unenlightened community. They both have to be balanced and not one-sided. Well, now let's consider a case study for the misapplication of this principle in the context of a misguided but righteous servant of God. This is the story of Jehoshaphat, a king of Judah. Jehoshaphat was a good king, obedient to God. We read this in 2 Chronicles 17. It says, And the Lord was with Jehoshaphat, because he walked in the first ways of his father David, and sought not after Balaam, but sought to the Lord, goddess of his father, and walked in his commandments, and not after the doings of Israel. Therefore the Lord established a kingdom in his hand, and all Judah brought to Jehoshaphat presents, and he had riches and honor in abundance, and his heart was was lifted up in the ways of the Lord. Moreover, he took away the high places and groves out of Judah. King Jehoshaphat also sent his princes and some priests and Levites throughout the kingdom of Judah to teach the people the right ways of God. But the failure of Jehoshaphat was the pursuit of the principle of unity with all the children of God, without any separation from, including Israel, despite Israel's idolatry and wickedness, Jehoshaphat not only made peace with Israel, but expressed his support of King Ahab in this way. And when asked if he would support Ahab in his military pursuits, uh, we read uh, how Jehoshaphat answers in 2 Chronicles 18. And Ahab, king of Israel, said unto Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Will you go with me to Ramoth Gilead? And he answered him, I am, as you are, my people, as your people, and we will be with you in war. Jehoshaphat's pursuit of unity with Israel and king Ahab went so far as his son, the crown prince Jehoram, Uh, who would be king after his father Jehoshaphat, taking the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel as his wife. Her name was Athaliah. We read that Jehoram was an evil king of Judah, despite that his father Jehoshaphat was a godly king, and we're also told why that was the case. Uh, 2 Kings 8, uh, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, began to reign. Thirty and two years old was he when he began to reign, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem, and he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, as did the house of Ahab. For the daughter of Ahab was his wife, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. The reason given why Jehoram was an evil king is defined as being sourced through his wife. Um... For the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel was his wife, and this was Athaliah. Despite all the excellent training Jehoram was given by his father, his wife corrupted him. Let's remember that advice that I offered in our last class. Pray endlessly, energetically, enthusiastically, regularly, that God will choose your spouse your wife or husband can make the difference in whether you will live forever or die forever. We probably all know the story of Athaliah. Uh, After her husband King Jehoram died, her son Ahaziah died also at the hands of Jehu, who overthrew the house of Ahab and um, in the process killed Ahaziah. So Athaliah, as the queen mother, seized power by having all the royal seed, her own sons, nephews, possibly grandsons, all executed, Uh, with, of course, the exception of the baby Joash, also known as Jehoash, who was saved by his aunt, a sister of King Ahaziah, and the wife of Jehoiada the priest. This is what results from pursuing unity as opposed to harmony. Jehoshaphat was a godly man and a righteous king, but he was very unwise in his pursuit of unity with the ungodly kingdom of Israel. He did not respect the necessity for separating from in addition to separating to. By taking the daughter of Jezebel as a wife for his son, the crown prince, he Brought about the corruption of his son by that wife and the murder of all his grandsons by that evil daughter in law, to make a league with the evil and ungodly children of God in that nation of Israel, who were also members of the enlightened, covenant bound community. Those who pursue unity, which is a very popular theme in our enlightened community over the last fifty years, and particularly currently, those who pursue unity do not respect the application of separating from, only two. That separation from has an application to the unenlightened community as well as the enlightened community. Well, let's, let's briefly consider one more case history that has a direct application on our considerations. this takes place years before the stories of Jehoshaphat and Athaliah. The nations of Judah and Israel had just recently separated. So there were two fellowships, two separate fellowships within the enlightened community, Judah and Israel. Jeroboam, the first king of Israel, had erected a golden calf in Bethel to the south of his kingdom, not far at all from Jerusalem, and of course also in Dan to the far north. He had appointed shallow, worthless men to be priests of this apostate structure. So a man of God was commanded by God to go to Bethel to prophesy against Jeroboam and his idolatrous altar. The man of God is instructed that once he has performed his task, he will not be allowed to stay and fellowship, eating with them or even returning to Judah the same way that he came. but there was an old prophet of God in Bethel, probably a man of reputation, as was often the case with prophets who could demonstrate that miraculous capacity to tell the future, to know things that would ordinarily be impossible for them to know. The sons of this old prophet had witnessed the message of the man of God from Judah, the healing of the leprous arm of King Jeroboam, and the earthquake destruction of the idolatrous altar. So the old prophet went riding after the man of God, inviting him to return and eat at his home and fellowship together. The man of God from Judah explained he had been commanded by God not to stay and eat. But then the prophet of God, in his desperate need for fellowship, in that increasingly ungodly environment at Bethel, lied to the man of God, reporting that an angel had commanded him Personally, to come get him in first kings 13 we read he said unto him i am a prophet also as you are and an angel spake unto me by the word of the lord saying bring him back with you into your house that he may eat bread and drink water but he lied unto him now it might seem strange that the man of god trusted this prophet of god telling him exactly the opposite of what he'd been directly commanded by God. But I would imagine this prophet of God had a reputation. The man of God is not defined as an old man, as was the old prophet of God. It seems reasonable that the man of God would trust this older, more experienced, probably renowned prophet of God. That was his deadly mistake. I have heard some rather upsetting suggestions about how this man of God was was lazy and inappropriately resting under an oak tree when the sincere but deceptive prophet of God found him. But the man of God was not instructed to hurry back to Judah, simply not to stay and eat or drink there, no fellowshipping, and to return by a different route than the one by which he had arrived. The man of God had been resolute in refusing King Jeroboam, who had offered not only to feed him, but to reward him. The man of God insisted that not even a half of his kingdom could entice him to disobey God's instructions. But this lying, probably fairly respected prophet of God, was successful with a simple lie that should have been transparent. So the man of God inappropriately trusted his brother in the truth and returned with the prophet of God that was so desperate for some fellowship with a fellow prophet that he would encourage that man of God to disobey God with a lie. At the home of the prophet of God, the lying prophet once again is used by God to prophesy but it's the death of the man of God for believing the lie of another respected Christadelphian and not following God's instructions. It was not the liar that was killed by God in this incident. It was the man of God who knew the will of God, but listened to and believed a respected member of the enlightened community who contradicted God for his own personal benefit. We at this time and this last generation Need to understand exactly what the terms of God's rightness are. Christadelphian reputations are utterly meaningless. God's righteousness is everything. We have to question everything, question everyone, only hold fast to what is right. Three dimensionally, not on the surface. It's not who is saying something, but what is being said. Truth, the terms of our Creator's righteousness, is everything, not people's feelings or anyone's presumption that they deserve respect no matter what. The divine principle of separation requires a separation to and a separation from in every application. That's how spiritual balance is achieved. We have challenging issues being presented to us today within the enlightened community that completely contradict this balanced combination of a separation to and a separation from. The terms of God's righteousness are being degraded on the basis of an insistence on brotherhood unity. That God's truths are just not as important as our pleasant social interaction and the odd impression of some kind of personal holiness that's that's presumed to be enjoyed by simply partaking of the memorial service? Fellowship distinctions are being disrespected between the amended fellowship and the unamended fellowship, for one example. Those in our community who oppose the separation of fellowships often insist this is due to an absence of love, but that really isn't the case. It's not an absence of love, but a different love Ladder. We all have love ladders. We love some things more than we love other things. We love our wife or our husband more than our parents. We love our own children far more than anyone else's children. We're supposed to love God more than we love our brothers and sisters. Not less, not even equal. We can't be like the sincere man of God from Judah who knew what was right but showed an inappropriate respect for an older brother in the truth, prompting him to disobey God, which brought about his death. And so in our next presentation, we will begin to address um, the issue of respecting fellowship distinctions.